Hey, it's Alex here. Before we get started, I wanted to tell you that this episode of the New Stack Makers is part of our second season of the Tech Founder Odyssey. We heard from a lot of founders in the first series, and we're going to hear from more about what it takes for a technical founder to launch a startup. What were the challenges they faced? What were the pitfalls? What were their personal stories along the way? This is what you'll get from the Tech Founder Odyssey series. I'll be hosting the first episode, and then I'll be handing it off to Heather Jocelyn and Colleen Call for the rest of season two. They are a dynamic duo. They do awesome work. I think you'll love to hear their interviews. We've got some great guests lined up, so please stay tuned. You're listening to The New Stack Makers, a podcast made for people who develop, deploy, and manage at-scale software. For more conversations and articles, go to thenewstack.io. All right, now on with the show. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Tech Founder Odyssey, part of the New Stack Bakers podcast. I'm your host, Heather Joslin of TNS, and I'm here as per usual with my TNS colleague, Colleen Call. Hey, Colleen. Hey, Heather. I'm so excited about this interview. There's somebody just like who's making a mark in the tech industry, so uh, I'm pretty excited. <laughs> Me too. And we're talking today about uh, Shania Levin, founder and CEO of CodeC. CodeC, which she started in 2019, is a developer platform that helps developers and development teams better onboard, review, and understand code bases. Before starting her company, Shania worked at a number of companies our listeners are well familiar with, Google, eBay, Docker, Cloudflare. We're excited to have her join us today. Hello and welcome, Shania. Thank you so much for having me. I'm also just as excited. Cool. That's let's get to it then. So let's start at the beginning. Where did you grow up and, and how did you get involved with computers? Yeah. So I was born in Baltimore, Maryland. Um, oh, nice. then, <laughs> that's where I am. That's where I, I am. Where Heather Amazing. is in Baltimore. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> a lot of my family is is still there. My mom and I left and my brother when we were when I was twelve, but then we moved to Virginia and when I was younger I had a Windows ninety five, <laughs> but it wasn't connected to the internet. And so I think and so I ended up like really trying to like do everything on this computer, but then it like actually did nothing because it didn't have the internet at the time and I would end up playing like tons and tons of Minesweeper. And then when we ended up moving to Virginia, I used to watch the the Disney channel when I was younger. And they always said like, you could do everything. Like you can do all this really cool stuff. You can play games and you can do all this stuff online. And I could never do any of it until we moved. My stepdad who adopted me had internet. And then I got on the internet and there was a whole world of just stuff to do, things to see. You could be anybody else. And so once I was like actually connected online at 12, I I, I was hooked for life. Nice, awesome. especially with the games. Minesweeper. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. How many hours did you clock in for that? <laughs> oh, as a child. Countless, countless <laughs> hours. Nice, nice. 
so were you as a teenager were you you're learning to program you what was how did you get started with that yeah so i i actually start programming a lot later in life than the okay. typical story but i was always really involved with computers and doing things on the internet and i i didn't actually start programming until i went to college i started in visual basic <laughs> oh. and then i started making macros in excel when i was an analyst and then i started and then i was just i just expanded and expanded and expanded and then when i was 19 i ended up starting a web development company which i did not know anything about but mm-hmm. my a partner of mine was in the publishing industry and we had all of these authors looking to like come on online and have their books to have an online presence. And so she had all of these authors who were trying to like do things on social media, like in 2008, 2009, it was like, you know, Facebook was the new hotness and everyone wanted a Facebook page and she didn't know anything about Facebook at the time. And and I did just because I had grown up with it. And then all of a sudden, like I was making custom websites for people. <laughs> um, and then, uh, nice. um, and then it just kind of kept going. I worked with a ton of authors and we built, I built websites for them. And then it was just a, a crazy ride after that. Uh, we had this agency. And so shortly after uh, a few years of making custom websites for people, I ended up applying to work at Google on the agency program because they needed someone with agency experience. And that kind of started, continued my journey. Oh, wow. So and when you were in college, you had undergraduate degrees in both computer science and business. Were you even thinking, it sounds like you had this business already when you were, how old were you when you said you started again? 19. 19. 19. Okay. So yeah. you're like very young. <laughs> wow. So was, was starting wow. your own business like part of the, part of the plan from the beginning? No, actually. Um, <laughs> so I was, I studied, I did a lot of business stuff in high school, actually our, our classes. I actually wanted to do fashion design. I was really big into making my own clothes and really big into, you know, how it presented myself. And so I ended up, someone told me to like take a business class when I was in high school. So I did. And I ended up taking a marketing class, which is surprising because I'm terrible at marketing now, but anyway, I digress. Um, <laughs> so I ended up taking a lot of classes in business. The The program was really exciting because there's a lot of things that you can do and a lot of math and a lot of logistics that I've also naturally gravitated towards. So I ended up my undergrad started in accounting and I was like terribly bored with that. So I ended up getting <laughs> just a general business degree. And then I actually went to back to school later to get a computer science degree. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Oh, nice. So now code C, I mean, what's up with that? What, what prompted you? I mean, I mean, you sound already busy. <laughs> I mean, as a 19 year old, I mean, tell us about the experience and the, uh, the problem that code C wants to solve and and how that's going so far. Uh yeah, so there's a lot there was a lot of years between 19 and when I started Codesy, just to be just to be really really yeah. clear. Okay, um, okay. Many, many many years. Um, but um I have always tried to learn more and more and more about technology. I had no concept of a developer tool until I went to Google and I ended up like getting two offers to be at Google. One was developer product and one was um, search. And I was like, oh, well, search is too technical for me. I can never, I can never be answered because I had watched the internship and I could never work on Google search. So I ended up <laughs> taking the developer relations, developer product job. And I was hooked. Like I saw 
the most brilliant people making such beautiful things. And I've always been a maker, right? Someone who like makes something, someone's very, very creative. And so I kept, at the time we had just released Android L and it had a developer program for the first time. And so it was just iOS had um, a huge developer program since day one. And it was like 10 years behind. <laughs> and so it was just such a an amazing opportunity to build something for people who also built things. And I've been in developer product ever since, building tools for developers. And during that time, I ended up filling my knowledge, my like foundational computer science knowledge, because I had been always programming self-taught. But I realized during that time that I, I had some gaps. So I went back to school to complete my computer science education. And then I ended up with working in developer tools, just moving uh, moving that forward a lot. And I kept seeing the same problems over and over and over again, which was, you know, these massive amounts of code. Like when you're working at somewhere like Google, which has, you know, 20 years at that point of just ridiculous legacy code and trying to like get onboarded to it as a, you know, a self-taught programmer, it's, it was just massive. Um, and so I kept seeing the same problem over and over, which was how do you understand all of this code without reading it line by line? Um, and so I never really can put it into those concepts until I saw this video by Brett Victor inventing on principle. And a lot of people have actually started companies based on this one single talk inventing on principle. Webflow was started that way. It was just so, so transformational to be able to, uh, Brett Victor talked about visualizing, see the data, see comparisons, bringing creativity and bringing visualizations closer to the developer. And so you know, after that, I was just like, well, what if all code was, you, you can understand it visually, because that's the fastest way to understand code is not just reading it line by line and creating a visualization in your head, but having a visual, the computer create those visuals for you. And so lots of people had tried to do it before. <laughs> I definitely, like a lot of people had tried, but the ability to do that at a production level scale and have the user experience knowledge to be able to bring that to a usable product was really, really hard and is really, really hard to do to bring those two things together. And so in 2019, I started tinkering around with stuff, <laughs> but only after, you know, we got VC funding was it, was it, we able to bring it to a production level scale. But at the time, I mean, you're saying something that you didn't see it happening and a lot of people were trying. So when you come up with this idea to uh, start Codesy, did you see anybody trying to do the same thing that you were doing or were you just the unique, this was a unique tool that you were offering? to uh, customers? Uh, I think it was a unique, a very unique tool. And since then, nice. you know, other people have started building tools in the same general space. But the real interesting part is we all are taking different approaches to how we think about visualizing code. And they're not all like copycats of one another because it's so new and you're creating mental models that are, you know, widely applicable. They all end up being different manifestations 
You mentioned that when you got um, VC funding, you were able to bring this to 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 scale. So I want to get a sense of your something that a thread that runs through a lot of our interviews for the series is is when did you know it could be a company? When did you know it could be your full time job? Could you walk us through that? I can, absolutely. <laughs> so I didn't at the, at the time, you know. I was already working, you know, when you're working with a lot of developers, we're constantly building stuff, like literally constantly. And so it's always kind of on your mind that something could be a business. I, I live in Silicon Valley and, you know, it's kind of the, the nature of everything constantly. And I, but I didn't actually intend to raise VC funds. That was not the plan. The plan was my my co-founder and I were going to build this thing. I was actually going to keep my full-time job. Um, so I started building in 2019 um, in December, but um, I ended up taking a VP of product job at another developer's tools company in January. And so I was building CodeC on nights and weekends and my co-founder was going to build the products while I did the product management while I kept my day job. (laughs) Um, And then, (laughs) so it wasn't like, oh, this is the exact moment. And then I ended up being very lucky and and meeting some folks who we told the plan to, and they were like, yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll fund that. And so uh, I kept my job for two more months before I quit. (laughs) I like, so it wasn't a, like, I'm going to put every dollar that I have into this. I had part of my salary. We hired a contractor um, to kind of help with the, with the growing of or writing code in the beginning. And then after a couple months and I found my replacement, that's when I quit. Although I don't fully recommend that. I didn't realize because I was already building code nights and weekends. I didn't realize that when, after you raise VC funding, they want to talk to you during business hours, like during the day where you also have a job during the day. Those are, those <laughs> you can't be in two places at the same time. So I don't recommend that, <laughs> but we didn't like stop. We did stop like exactly and put everything in it um, before we started. That's fantastic. How many people work for Coatsy? Now, I mean, now that you told us about your journey. Yeah, thir- 13. Um, and then we have a, a, a few contractors that kind of come in, in and out on the, you know, depending on the specialist experiment that we're trying to run, that sort of thing. That's fantastic. Can you tell us a little bit, and you mentioned that you were lucky enough to meet some people who could connect you with VC funding. What what was the experience of, of uh, seeking funding like? Do you have any takeaways or advice for other potential founders from that? Yeah. So I recommend, there is a book, Secrets of Sand Hill Road, and there are a lot of books around like how to be a VC. And I recommend reading, uh, if you don't have a network who it, like is in the VC world, it is its own ecosystem. It has its own way of doing things. They have specific goals that they're trying to meet. They have something called LPs or who are investors in VCs and they all have different motivations and different goals. So as a founder, um, I highly recommend learn, like finding someone who knows about the VC industry, but also, or just like, learning how to be a VC so that you know what they look for. Because the logical thing, what I made my first mistake is I, I ended up taking the logical approach, right? Like here is, here's the business. Here's, we have a lot of, you know, users who are interested in this when we can build it. Here's what we're trying to accomplish. Here's why this would be a game changing business, but here's here. It's very logical. And a lot of times, particularly at the seed stage, 
anything could change at any time, as we've seen in the last year. (laughs) And so learning about what they invest in, which is your vision and the team are something that's like completely opposite for what founders think that they're, you know, pitching. I, I have my, in my head, my, the thing that I try to tell, you know, customers, but then that's could be slightly different framing for how you talk to investors. So I recommend either finding a buddy who like knows about VC or just like reading a lot of content on how to be a VC, even if you don't want to be one. If you like tech podcasts, then you need to subscribe to Software Defined Talk right now. It's a weekly podcast that recaps all the news in cloud computing, DevOps, and enterprise software. The hosts, Kote, Matt Ray, and Brandon will keep you up to date on topics like Kubernetes, DevOps, platform engineering, and anything related to enterprise tech. Plus, they'll weave in plenty of nonsense like how to optimize shopping at Costco. It's a fun, freewheeling conversion that will keep you informed and entertained while doing the dishes or walking your dog. What are you waiting for? Subscribe to the podcast today by visiting softwaredefinedtalk.com or by searching for Software Defined Talk in your favorite podcast app. You mentioned things that have happened the last year. I think, Colleen, you had a question about AI. Yes. Well... I'm sure Shanae has had many of these <laughs> questions asked. I mean, I mean, you're yeah. talking about developer tools and your developer platform, but and you know the conversation that's going on since you know it went from Web three, but now it's like generated AI and, and ChatGPT. Sure. How has this, if it did, change the dynamic how you work and for your customers? So for for me, how I work, I think one of the we we might talk about this, but um, writing is really hard for me, and so it's a lot easier to for me to edit than it is to like start from a blank page. And so the like most impact that I have in my personal life is like using chat GPT to just like give me a quick summary on something like we, we, we had our first webinar and I was like, I need to write a description for webinar. Never done a webinar. Like, <laughs> so I was like, chat GPT, like what's give me a webinar description. And I was like, Oh, that, that sounds like a web. That sounds like it. Yeah, let's do that. Um, and then I was able to edit it. But as far as like developer coding, there's still, it's still got a long way to go. And that, and that's fine. Right. So I think that, you know, it can, there's, you see a lot of things on Twitter right now. Um, or yes. you see a lot of things in like the different communities where like they have very small, it's like toy app type things, which is great. Like, you know, it really helps kind of like doing very small, like minute tasks that you have to be able to do, which is awesome. But as far as what people want for AI for in regards to what we do, which is a taking a code base and being able to have it tell you what to do and being able to analyze the code and understand the code, like particularly on a company's code base, mm-hmm. that's, it's not readily available today and there are no models for it. Um, everybody has their own unique plate of spaghetti, which is the saying that I say all the time. Uh, and so there's, you have to be able to train models for that. Do I think that we'll get there one day? Sure. Yeah, maybe, but that doesn't negate the fact that there's still like, how do you understand the 
code on a fundamental trade-off level, right? Like how do you make those architecture decisions? Um, and that's what humans are really, really good at. Like what are the mm -hmm. business trade-offs? What are the, you know, how do you make something faster and more performance without that? Just small tweaks, but overall, and you might have different reasons. Humanity is going to come into play in all of that, right? <laughs> how do you confirm that it's secure? How do you confirm that it's, you know, all, you know, ethical, right? All of those different things come into place with, with AIs. And I think we have a long, long way to go. Um, are we, Codesy, thinking about, you know, how AI affects our product? Of course we are. But I, I don't think that for what people are trying to do that, it, that it's there. Well, speaking of when you mentioned we, and uh, humans. Uh, <laughs> and because, I mean, I guess my question is, what is your company culture? Because, I mean, there, like you said, there's going to be a lot of ethics around this particular uh, topic. Plus, I mean, uh, how is it, uh, how do you make it comfortable to work with Coatsy, the people, and then finding that wonderful talent to work for a company like yours? So, I've been around for a while. <laughs> I've been around in tech companies for a while. Um, <laughs> and I say that to say, I've seen a lot of different cultures. Um, and so when we decided to start a company, I, in addition to, you know, creating a good product and having a, you know, a, a business that supports users, um, we wanted to make sure that our culture was just as important as the product itself. C building culture is about it's just as important as like building the product in and of itself, the systems, the processes, the thought patterns, all of those things. And we absolutely try to protect our culture. And I have very key things that I think about with, with culture for, for one thing, we think about culture as a system, not just like kind of fluffy, like pinball machines and those sorts of things. You know, it's a system of behaviors and, you know, feedback, right? If there's a thing that you want to remain in your culture or grow in your culture, you reward those things. You can publicly reward those things. You can talk, you can uh, think about those things together. These are the things that you want to happen. If there are things that people are doing that don't fall in line with the culture. You have to say something. You have to give feedback. You have to move those things forward and articulate and demonstrate that those things are not what we want to facilitate in, uh, in a company. And so it, it has, you, they're sometimes very, very uncomfortable to be able to do. If you don't know how to do them well, I have another resource, crucial conversations. Um, I highly yeah. recommend reading for building culture in a company, uh, but you know, we've all over the last few years have had to deal with a lot of uncomfortable situations. <laughs> and so having an open place to have those conversations and a place where everyone feels safe is absolutely critical and will continue to be critical. I wanted to ask a little bit about the role of community in your story. Um, you're involved in an organization called Women in Product. What is it and how has it supported you? Yeah. Women in Product is an amazing organization started by, I would I don't know if they're OGs, but um, started by um, <laughs> the amazing, they were at the time when they started VPs of product at Facebook, Deb Liu, um, Fiji, who's, and Deb Liu is now the CEO of Ancestry and Fiji is the CEO of Instacart now. And so they ended up starting this organization of women in product. And when I, I was very much, you know, a technical PM for many years and wanted to 
be a part of a community with, you know, other women in product. Product is this very like wishy-washy field that like you can be, not everything is the same. Like it's not, you can't just toss a line of code and hit execute and it will tell you if it's broken. Like that's not the way that product works. Um, and so being a part of community was incredibly important. And then when I became a director, um, I realized that, you know, every woman in product that I know is part of this group. <laughs> and so if, uh, you couldn't have executive level conversations, you couldn't have, you know, team management if you have a question about how to manage your team or a difficult person on your team, you couldn't have that in the main channel because your direct report might be there. <laughs> and so we ended up starting a chapter um, called Executive Women in Product that I that I kind of led in uh, for a while. Um, and I've handed it off recently to a very, very dear friend of mine. But it was an absolute critical place in my life. Like I ended up building a, a product course to, and then send it out to a, like a bunch of women in product that helped me raise before I raised funding. Like I sold this course to help get cozy off the ground. Like it was just a, an incredible place to meet people, ask those tough questions, you know, make sure that people felt supported and I could give back to that community when I was able to. So it's been community is such an important part of not only my product career, but also my founding career as well. You mentioned that you're not crazy about writing, but I, I noticed you're a very prolific blogger and podcaster. We know that generating content is essential to generating business leads. Do you like doing it? And what have you learned from doing all that? content well, about yourself and <laughs> to be perfectly honest I don't like <laughs> I, so like being part of this conversation is fine like it's great I love talking to people I love supporting people but writing is always been really really hard for me and I'm not I'm not gonna lie it's it's very challenging for me to like sit down and like write something I think over the years I've gotten a lot better at it just by will of force, but it's not something that I naturally gravitate towards. What's the real challenge of sitting down? I know, believe me, we're, we're all writers and we're all editors and I do prefer to edit, right? Heather, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> we do prefer um, to edit. But yeah, yeah what's yeah. the challenge I when just, it comes to that? I, I, I don't, like, it's just, I don't know if it's just the the foundations of like putting together like a, an engaging piece, I think for like technical documentation or like writing a, a spec, like I don't, there's no, there's no feeling in that. <laughs> right. There's no, <laughs> like I'm fine there's doing no that. Feeling in writing. When, <laughs> yeah. Like, if you write, if you write a spec, like, or if you write yeah, like, yeah. you know, instructions or a tutorial that way, like that's fine. Like do these things. I can be really clear. But when you're writing editorial content, there's all of these things. People have really, really short attention spans. I know I have really short attention spans. You have to make it funny and engaging and you have to be brief and you have to make sure not say too much and think about like people's, you know, different perspectives of, and you never get to meet these people. You have no idea who's reading, reading it. And so all of those things, you know, make it really challenging for me at least. So what I do is I end up I'm talking it out and just calling it word vomit and then trying to piece it together in like an organized way. And I've started making outlines, which is is actually the opposite of word vomit. So <laughs> trying to pull all of those together and then trying to maybe get some collaborative help with being like, hey, can you look at this real quick and give me some pointers um, and making it a very collaborative approach as opposed to doing it all myself. Well, what about 
being a podcaster. It's just a lot of organizing and but showing your face and sharing your audio, which is scary for me to hear myself. But do you prefer that other than blogging? Absolutely. I absolutely prefer <laughs> podcasting than, than writing <laughs> without a question. I can hop on a podcast and like with like a moment's notice and just kind of talk because I just feel like with a lot of my training in developer product, you know, going to events and kind of being one-on-one, I, I, I've been speaker trained and which is not actually that much is basically like a therapy session. So if you've got a therapist like that, that also will, will help with speaker training. But I love doing podcasts. I can just hop on a call and talking with, you know, like a friend. Excellent. One last question. What's next for you and, and your company? Yeah, I we're growing. We are really helping. There's like a massive, massive amount of code that we're trying to analyze. And um, we've launched a new feature called Service Flows that allows you to visualize your architecture of the code base and showing how uh, execution flows throughout all your different services. And that has been like customers have loved that. And so what's next for us is to be able to really help people really get a full holistic picture of how their code works and how their systems work. And then we'll might be adding some AI features in the near future, but really uh, supporting our, our growing enterprises is where we're, where we're going to stick to you for a while. <laughs> Excellent. Well, that's nice. And I guess we'll, we'll wrap up. Uh, Colleen and I would like to thank Shanae Levin for, uh, of Coatsy for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> thank you. And we'd like to thank all of you for joining us for this episode of the Tech Founder Odyssey. This has been Heather Joslin and Colleen Call for the New Stack Makers. See you next time. Thanks for listening. If you like the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's one of the best ways you can help us grow this community. And we really appreciate your feedback. You can find the full video version of this episode on YouTube. Search for The New Stack and don't forget to subscribe so you never miss any new videos. Thanks for joining us and see you soon. Hold up.